All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank this opportunity we have to come together and to worship you and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we examine this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we're continuing the story of the first missionary trip. Remember that they were in Antioch uh, where they left. They were called out and they went to Cyprus and they finally are getting ready to leave there. And so we're going to look at uh, Acts? Acts, excuse me, Acts chapter 13. Uh, verse 13 is where we left off, so we're going to start there. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Pathos, they came to Perga in Path- Pathelia, and John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. We're going to stop there because... This is going to be a sore point for Paul later on because Barnabas is going to want to give John a second chance. We do not know why John, uh, why, why John Mark left. All we know is that in the middle, after the first island, he departed. Uh, and we don't know, did he get sick? Did he just not like the persecution? Did he not like travel? Did he miss home? Was he homesick? We have no idea. The, the Bible never tells us why he left. But when they get ready to go on the second trip, there's so much contention between Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas is saying, we really need to take John, John Mark with us again. And, John, and Paul says, nope, been burned once, not going to do it again. Uh, and says, and just won't have grace for him. Uh, Barnabas was an encourager. And the good news out of that is they ended up with two missionary teams out of the deal. Barnabas took, took uh, John, John Mark and Paul took... Silas, which we'll get to later on in the book, but out of the deal there was two, but this is where that event happens. It's going to be a big deal later on. Uh, John Mark leaves, and we don't know why or anything about it. He just goes back home, and Paul is going to hold it against him, and I can almost think Paul's personality was he's, nothing is going to stop him, and we see that in his personality. Shipwrecks don't stop him. Being stoned doesn't stop him. Uh, huh? And I think that's, and I, and I understand that. When I first started in management, I was very hardcore. I expected everybody to do things as well as I did it, which was unfair because I did things at a much higher standard than anybody else would do them. And it made it very hard. And I, and I think I kind of understand Paul. He bailed on us once. We're not, I'm not giving him another chance to bail on me. I want to take somebody else. Uh, and again, we don't know why. We have no idea why he left. So verse 14. And when, but when they had departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent, sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they, were, when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with a high hand brought them out of it. And at the time of 40 years stiff, suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their, their land unto them by lot. And after that he gave them judges that, for about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of 
Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave a testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a savior. We'll stop there. <laughs> um, so we see here, they went into Pergia, per, Perga and Antioch of Philistia. This is not the same Antioch they started at. All right? They started in Antioch in Syria, and now they're in Antioch in Asia Minor. Okay, the map I gave you all, they're starting in Antioch, which is over in, in Jerusalem, over uh, north of Jerusalem. Then they go to Cyprus. So you can follow that line to Cyprus. Now they're going to come up here and eventually get up into Antioch. Oh, in this Antioch. Antioch up in there. All right, so now they're in Antioch up there. And when they get there, they go they, on the Sabbath day, which would be Saturday, they went to the synagogue. And verse 15 tells us, And after reading the law and the prophets, the, ruler, the rulers of the synagogue said to them, You men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. This was the process in the synagogue. Every day, every time they met, they would read from the law, the first five books of the Bible, and they had a plan that they would read through the whole law of the, of the whole Pentateuch in a, in a year. So they basically split it up, and each, each time you went to the synagogue, there would be a reading, and that would be the primary reading. Then they would read from the prophets, and they also would split the prophets up, but they weren't trying to get through them in one year, <laughs> uh, in 52 sessions. So this was their process. They, Paul went there, they had it, and the next thing they went to, when they had visiting teachers, the visiting teacher would be asked, would you, do you have anything that you would like to, to say? Um, and Paul was a rabbi, as we know, he was a Pharisee, and I'm sure he played his cards up big time when he went to these synagogues. You know, I'm Paul, uh, I'm Saul of Tarsus, I've been trained under Ga uh, Gamaliel, I'm, I'm a Pharisee, uh, part of the Sanhedrin, you know, he was part of the Sanhedrin, I'm sure he went through all of his pedigree so that he got, made sure that he got invited to speak. <laughs> because everywhere he goes, he is asked to speak. And remember, we've talked about that. His teacher was Gamaliel, the number three Hebrew teacher of all time. Not just of his day, but of all time for the Jews. So during his time, he was taught by the number one teacher of Hebrew laws and, and religion. So he was very respected. Wherever he had to go, all he had to do was say, you know, I'm a student, I'm a student of Gamaliel, and all of a sudden he was going to be invited <laughs> to speak. And so they, they after they did their, re, per, their, their, their reading, they talked to Paul. And then Paul stood up and beckoned with his hand and said, men of Israel and you that fear God, give audience. And then he gives a, starts into a history. The God of this people Israel cho chose our fathers and dwelt, when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for us, hopefully we know this story. This is chosen. Abraham's chosen by God. 
and given the promise that his people are going to be as numerous as the stars in the, in the sea. So he's not, he's, his crowd is such that he's not defining all of these terms. He's just saying, we were chosen. They know they're Abraham's seed. And then he goes, and God delivered us out of Egypt. All right, the ten plagues when they were enslaved in Egypt where they had gone in when Joseph was there and he became the master second in charge next to Pharaoh and he gathered up all the excess food for the seven years of plenty and then protected them for seven years of famine and he brought his family in and then when he died after a period of time they came in with 70 people uh, and when they leave they're about three and a half million strong you know, over 600,000 fighting men and we know that each one of them, each one of the fighting men were probably married and that didn't count their kids or their, or anybody who was not fighting age. So most people believe that there was about three and a half million or so people when they left. So they were there for a few hundred years, three generations. And when they leave, they are a nation. And God delivers them with a mighty hand. And this is what he's just, he's just going over through real quick. And in verse 18, and, and for about the time of 40 years suffered he the, their manners in the wilderness. In other words, God put up with them for 40 years. <laughs> it's kind of a poetic way to say that, but he goes, God put up with their, uh, actually it literally means endured one's character. And what does God say and Moses say about the people during that period of time? They're a stiff-necked people. They won't listen to God. And poor Moses, every time he turned around, they were griping at him. Uh, you know, we're, we're here without water, and it's your fault. God brought us in, in front of the Red Sea to kill us. You know, it's your fault. We're hungry. We, we, you know, God gave them manna, which is a perfect food to keep them healthy, and nobody was sick. Nobody had their feet swollen. Uh, they were able to wear the same clothes and shoes for 40 years that didn't wear out. And all they did was complain and complain and complain and complain. And so God endured them for 40, 40 years. And then it says, And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land by lot. Uh, those seven nations, in case you're interested, are the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Uh, if you start reading the... the Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, you read those and Joshua and Judges, or especially Joshua, uh, you read those seven names all the time. And it gets really easy to say them after a while when you're studying those books because you, you repeat them every, you know, when I was going through those books, I repeated them every single week and sometimes more than one time uh, on each week. Uh, but these were the nations that made up that land that we now call the Palestinian area. So that would be the Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Canaanites, excuse me, Perites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. And so they were delivered. And when it was time to split up their land, God said, draw lots. And they would draw lots, and the people were given their portion of the promised land. And uh, so Paul right now is just going over, and he's saying, I'm going to give you our history. Maybe showing off, maybe, you know, I don't know what exactly, but he's, he's given them a history lesson. And he says, 
Then verse 20, And after they had given them judges for about 450 years between Samuel and the prophet. So from the time they got into the land after Joshua, they had the period of the judges. And Saul is saying it was approximately 450 years that they were under the period of the judges. And that will take us up to Samuel, the last, last prophet, the last judge of Israel. So that would be all these individuals, that would be uh, Gideon, that would be uh, Samson, Deborah, all those guys, all those people from the book of Judges are this period of 450 years that he says, here is the people that we have. Huh? Samuel was, Samuel was the last judge of, of Israel. After, after Samuel, you're going to have a king. Um, and what we had is the people, when Samuel got to the end of it, you know, late in his life, he had a bunch of sons, and his intention had been to let his sons take over his position, but his sons were bad boys. Uh, they were sleeping with the women and extracting offerings and doing everything they weren't supposed to do. And the people went to him and said, uh, your sons aren't the same as you. We want a king. And actually, they say, we want to be all, like all the other countries and have a king. But Samuel's sons had been putting in the wrong direction. And this is the problem sometimes when we have in churches where people don't live out the mes gospel message. It hurts. It hurts the testimony of the church as a whole. And so the people went to Samuel. And again, he's not, he's not giving out any of this history. I'm trying to make sure we're catching up on, on some of the things he's saying. Because when he's talking to the, to the people in the synagogue, he's basically saying, you know all these things. Here, here is where we're going. Uh, and he's just reminding them of their history. And this was a big deal because at Passover, they were always remembering the 10 plagues of Israel the, and the killing of the firstborn and the deliverance and then they know that out of that deliverance came the 40 years of wandering and then the, and then the promised land. Um, now, were all of them able to name off all seven nations that were conquered? Prob you know, probably not. But they were aware that they were ruled by judges. Uh, and they, they know that a king came out of this. Uh, verse 21 says, And after they had afterward they desired a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for about 40 years. And so Saul reigns for 40 years. And this is in uh, 1 Samuel 8. They're at, they ask for a king. And they get Saul. And it's kind of funny because Saul is anointed king. And when it's time to present him, it, you know, it's a very funny paragraph. They go, to, they, they go, where is he? And they go, he's hiding in the baggage car. <laughs> now, he was, not, he was not a very brave man. And he was anointed king. And then he got very proud after a couple of victories. And then he got envious of David because David was starting to get a following. And then he started attacking David, as, you, as you're aware of the story of him trying to kill David. Um, after the 40 years, it says, And when he had removed him, in verse 22, he raised up unto him David to be their king, and he gave this testimony, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And this is a really beautiful picture. 
David is, is exalted, anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. And God says he's a man after my own heart. And this is quite a statement. Very few people really got a description like David did. Abraham was called a friend of God. And that is a beautiful statement in and of itself that he was considered a friend. David is a man after God's heart. And we know David uh, committed adultery, was a murderer, was lots of different things. And, and yet God said, he's a man after my own heart. Why? Because in general, he repented and he turned to God and followed after God. Now, usually he did it fairly quickly. After the murder of Uriah, it took him a little, a little while to repent. He went through the entire pregnancy of Bathsheba, all the way through to, the, to a young child when, he, when, the, when the child was, was killed because of the sin. David is the one that God said he's a man after his own heart. Saul was, Saul was, was rejected. Okay. If you remember the story of Saul, he did not obey God. God said, go fight the Amorites and kill all the Amorites and kill all the animals. And they didn't kill the animals. They kept the best of the animals and they didn't kill uh, King Agag. And when... Samuel showed up, he goes, his greeting to Samuel was, I have done all that God has told me to do. And Samuel says, well, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And then Saul said, well, the people kept the best of the stuff so they could offer sacrifices. And that is when Samuel said back to him, does God require sacrifices? He wants obedience more than sacrifice. And this is just it. Sometimes we as Christians get this idea, oh, if all we got to do is obey God, and God wants our heart. You know, he doesn't want just obedience. He wants everything about us. He's not looking at us to keep the laws and everything. He wants to say, are you doing the best that you can? And then Samuel called forth Agag, who thought he was, was past all death, and then uh, Samuel grabbed a sword and cut him to, hacked him to pieces which was not during battle. So he got rid of the king. So we have all of this going on. And, and again, Saul is, uh, Paul is not giving the, you know, the, the details of the story because he knows you, he's going, you know these stories. But when Saul did not fulfill there, the next thing he did is he went out and he made a sacrifice of, on his own, with, which is not the king's job, because he got tired of waiting for Samuel. And so Samuel says, because you are not being obedient to God, God is taking the kingdom from you. And he gets to reign for another 35 years, but, uh, but God took the kingdom from him and raised up David. And then we see David was being called. Uh, Samuel went to Jesse's house, which is David's father, and said, we're going to have a celebration with you. You all are invited. And he says, bring all of your boys. And, and he paraded all of his boys in front of him, and he forgot one boy. David was out tending the sheep. He was the youngest, youngest of the boys, uh, tending the sheep, forgot about him, probably on purpose because, you know, it's, you know, it's, 
Yeah, he's the, he's the stinky one. He's out there with the sheep, and he likes he just likes being out there playing his harp and and uh, hanging out with the sheep. And Saul and uh, Samuel had gone down each of the children, thinking, you know. And the first one he looks at and says, wow, this guy looks like a king. He's tall. He carries himself. And God says, nope, that's not the one. I'm not looking at the outside. And finally gets down to the last one that Jesse brought. Says, well, do you have any other boys? He goes, oh, yeah, there's David. There's one more in the, in the field. And he says, go get him. We're not, we're not having dinner until he's here. And then he anoints David to be king. And it's going to be another 20-some years before he finally gets to be king. And David had the testimony that he is a man after God's heart. You know, what a beautiful thing. Be a friend of God as Abraham was, or be a, be a man after God's heart would be a wonderful statement. Or just to hear the one thing I'd love to hear when I stand before God, welcome, enter in, good and faithful servant. You know, any positive statement from God will be good. And they, these are the ones that have their positive statements. And then... In verse 23, and it says, And of this man's seed, God hath, according to his promise, raised up Israel a Savior and named Jesus. So the Hebrew people understood that the Messiah was going to come out of the seed of David and that he was going to be the ruler forever. And so now we have... Saul coming into these people and saying, uh, by the way, he's come. This man that is in the, this man named Jesus is the seed of David, the Savior, the Messiah. And again, now he's getting now he's getting ready to go into the preaching. All right, this is where he's going to start leaving the history lesson. Up till this point, it's just been a history. Here, you know this, you know this, you know this, you know this, you know there was a promise. I'm going, to tell you who this, I'm going to tell you who the Messiah is. So that was his, his progress up to this point. Laying the groundwork, making sure they understood who, who it is, what he's talking about. All right, verse 24. When John had first preached before his coming of the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled the, his course, he said, Whom think you that I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you that fears God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them that came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promises which were made unto our fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. And as concerning that, he raised him from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. 
He said in, on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he said also in another psalm, you, are not, you shall not suffer the Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell on asleep and was laid unto his fathers and laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. All right, so now he's starting to preach the gospel. All right, he's given them the gospel message. And he starts with John. All right, so he's jumping from David all the way to John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist. Uh, quite, a, quite a time span there. Uh, that he's moving, moving through. He's gone over a thousand years ahead of, ahead of time. He hits David, jumps over all the other kings, and says, now there's John. Now, this kind of tells us how famous John was because he's no longer in the Middle East where John ministered. So something was well known about John, or he didn't care that people didn't know about John. He's going to tell them a little bit about him. And it says, when John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance unto all the people of Israel... Now, we kind of look at this and go, well, wasn't that part of the Jewish traditions? Yes and no. If they read the scriptures, they understood that God required repentance. But most of the Jews did not understand the scriptures. They just did what tradition said. They came on Saturday morning. They would gather at the synagogue. They would be read the, the law. They'd be read the prophets. Somebody would give them a little bit of... Uh, nice words and they would go home maybe sing a couple psalms and then they would go home if you were in jerusalem and then uh, with jerusalem twice a year uh, three times a year they would go to jerusalem for for feast if they were good followers of, of god and offer sacrifices at the temple other than that it was just routine and unfortunately many christians kind of live with the same same routine up Sunday morning, get up, go to church. I went to Sunday school and had my. I listened to I listened to a teacher talk about the Bible. I went to church. We sang a couple songs. The pastor got up. He spoke a few words about the Bible, and then I went home. And you ask him, well, what did you learn? I don't know. They they talked. <laughs> you know, didn't didn't mean anything. I was I just went to the I went to this church. I I I did my time, did my time for the week. <laughs> That's how many of the Jews were at that time. Just did my time. I listened to the prophets. I listened to the law. Somebody spoke for a few minutes. We sang a few songs and we went home. We need to be very careful about getting into that place where we're just going through the motions. And just, oh, well, I'm there. <laughs> heard, heard a few words. If they're not meaning anything, we're, we're, we're probably coming in with the wrong attitude or we're at the wrong church. One or the other. If we're not learning anything, we're not, be, we're not growing, then we're not coming in with the right attitude. And it is easy to come to church with the wrong attitude. Satan is real good about helping us with that. You'll have a fight with your, with your spouse. You'll, you'll have a car, car breakdown on the way down. You'll have somebody phone call you with bad news right before it's time to leave. All kinds of different things to get us into the mood not to listen. Uh, and so we need to make sure that when we are ready for church, that we're coming, God, I need to be in the right attitude. This is why many times I'm saying, when we sing these songs that we sing a lot, are we really listening to the words that we're singing? 
some of the songs we sing are very powerful songs when we listen to the words and say, wow, what, what power there is in these. And so we're looking at here and he's saying, John taught repentance and baptism. And baptism was the, we've talked about this, for baptism it is the idea that you're dying to your old way of thinking and being resurrected to a new way of thinking. And it's very important to be able to understand all that because John the Baptist did it with, we're, we're having a new lesson on repentance. Right? Dying to your old way of thinking and living to a new way of thinking. Remember we've shared that in, in for the Jewish people, whenever they would change rabbis, and, and a rabbi would teach something, some different set of truths to them, they would be baptized in the name of that rabbi. Which is why in the New Testament we keep having them ask, whose baptism were you baptized in? Because they want to know, what, who are you following? What, what are you following? There are churches even to our day that if you're not baptized in their denomination, they will make you get baptized over again to be part of their church. Now, I don't necessarily believe that, but I understand why they don't understand anymore why. I understand why they, they would believe that. You're switching denominations. We have slightly different teachings. You might as well be baptized, die to your old way of thinking, and be brought into the new way of thinking. I don't necessarily do that because if you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you're, you're baptized. Uh, but you do need to make sure that it was something that was real to you, uh, which is one of my problems. You know, When I baptize somebody, I want to make sure they know what it is that they've done so that we're not wasting our time. Because there are a lot of people that just because they're baptized, they think they're okay. And baptism is not what makes you okay. It is a sign that you're okay to, to other people. And so he's going in, John taught repentance and he baptized people into repentance and this is a big step because repent is what God kept saying and still says to this day repent turn away from your sin and this is part of even today's message of the gospel we recognize we're a sinner we recognize we deserve punishment and we re repent and turn our whole life over to God and that repentance is a key part of it uh, if I go, God, I'm turning my life over to you, but I'm going to continue living the way that I've always lived, then, then we're probably not saved because we have no intention of ever changing our life. And God is saying, your life is going to change. And truthfully, when somebody gets saved and they truly commit to God, they know that, they have been, that they've been changed. Now, they may not get all emotional, but... There's a lightness in there. There's a difference. And they find that they, love, they have a love for God's word. They have a love for God's people that they never had before. And I think when you're saying, too, when the things you used to do, if you try to do it, you don't. Yeah, you're not going to be able to. No, you're not going to be able to. Because it's the spirit right. in you won't let you enjoy the sin. And this is why I say if somebody can sin without any conviction in their life, they really need to look at their life and say, do I truly know God? Uh, now, it is one thing that you could keep doing it so much that you have quenched the spirit and pushed it down. But, it, but when you first started living that way, there should have been some very strong convictions. And I know I can't go out and do anything wrong without the spirit 
pounding on my head and saying, uh, what do you think you're doing? Uh, how, you know, you're not supposed to do this. You're, you know, uh, there's no pleasure in it. There's no joy in it. And he keeps pounding on it. <laughs> yep. Then he went on in verse 25, and when John fulfilled his course, his duty, his, his, his ministry, he said, whom think you I, that I am? I am not he. I'm not, you know, they all thought that he was Jesus. He, he was going to be the Messiah. And he goes, I'm not him. And then he says something so interesting. He goes, for behold, there comes one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. In other words, he is so far bigger, better, stronger, uh, higher than me that I'm not, even, uh, I'm not even worthy to do the low servant's job of unlatching his shoes and, and taking his shoes off. Uh, John was quite an interesting character because his, his disciples came to him and said, John, your disciples, your, the other disciples are leaving you. And his answer to them were, he must increase and I must decrease. What a beautiful statement. He understood that his time was over. It was Jesus' time, and he did not want to try to fight. Saul, the king Saul, tried to fight. He did not want David to take over the king. He knew that the kingdom was being taken, over, taken from him, and he's going, no, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can not to. If he had ever repented... God might have done something for him because we see we saw kings of God said I'm going to take your kingdom away they repented and God took the kingdom away in the second or third generation of their children King Saul never repented of his sin and here we see somebody who is just so humble my job is to announce the Messiah I am not the Messiah he's here follow him and he basically pointed all of his disciples follow him Go to him. He, he's the one that I've been preaching about. And several of Jesus' disciples were followers of John the Baptist and pointed back to Jesus. And the humility of John is just amazing. I have not seen this humility anywhere else in the Bible where somebody says, you know, go follow them. My, 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 my time is over. And he hasn't even died yet. He hadn't been arrested yet when he's telling his disciples to go follow, follow Jesus. And then he gets arrested and killed. And his disciples started realizing, well, we're going to go follow the man he pointed us to. But John's ministry, all through Acts, we're going to find people all over Asia Minor that had been baptized by John, and they were following the teaching of repentance. And again, this was not the general aspect of the Jew. The Jew said, I, I'm going to heaven because of the sacrifices I made on Yom Kippur that covered my sin and I'm okay. They really didn't think about repentance. Even though the Bible talks about repentance everywhere, repentance was not part of their lifestyle and their religion. And so he's saying, Paul, uh, John said, I'm not there. And then he goes to verse 26, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you that fears God, <laughs> to you is the word of this salvation sent. Stock of Israel, Jews. And then, you know, it's kind of very, hopefully redundant, and whosoever fears God. Now, 
I'm not sure who that means. Maybe there were lots of, lots of proselytes in this church. Then he's saying, whoso fears God, the promise of salvation is here. Salvation, rescue. They understood. They were looking for the Messiah that was going to establish God's kingdom. Huh? It's partially rescue. It's more than that. It's rescue from hell, you know, into God's family, lots of, lots of things. But they've been looking for somebody who's going to rescue Israel, bring their salvation, make, deliver them. Literally means deliver. Uh, they are captive of Rome. They've been captive of Rome for a couple hundred years already. And they're wanting deliverance from Rome. They want to be the country that they once had. They know that Messiah is going to rule from Jerusalem and reign, reign over things. So Paul is saying, now's the time. Now is the time. The Messiah is come. And so this is going to grab their attention. This is what they're dreaming for. And he goes, here it is. And, I'm, and so they're going to pay attention. They want to know, okay, who is this Messiah that he's talking about? Verse 27. And they that dwelt at Jerusalem and their rulers because they knew him not nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day they have fulfilled them in condemning him one of the things he's saying here is they should have known him they had been taught they had listened to the prophets they had listened to the Messianic teachings and he goes they didn't rescue him they didn't recognize him excuse me rescue they did not recognize him and it says, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. He wasn't really, this is kind of a walk in a fine line between condemning, you know, accusing them. But he's also saying they did what they were supposed to do because it fulfilled the, God, the prophecies. And this is a very fine line between, you know, do we have free will or we do things only because God says we must do things. Uh, where, where the truth is on that, the Bible talks about predestination all the time, and this is what Paul is basically saying. They did what they had to do. If they had not killed Jesus, then the prophecies were incorrect. Now, nowhere in there says that the Jews were going to do it, but you know, the Jews were considered the, by God the priest of the world. They were supposed to introduce the, the world to God. Now, they didn't for most of their, most of their existence, but in Paul's days and Jesus' day, they offered this, the perfect Lamb of God for the sins of the world. Sam, close that door. Uh, so they went out and they made the sacrifice of the sac of the, as priest of the world. They made the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, that really wasn't the way people understood the scriptures, but Paul is saying they did what needed to be done. They, for the scriptures to be fulfilled, they had to offer that sacrifice. And, you know, we see it over and over again. The, the, the crucifixion was foretold. Isaiah talked exactly about how he was going to die on, the, uh, on, the, on a cross and being beaten and and being rejected and not being listened to. The, the teachers did not see the Messiah as somebody who was going to die 
and then resurrect. They saw only the side that we're still looking forward to, the end days of the Messiah coming and reigning in the world, and that's what they were looking for. And Paul is saying they did what they were supposed to do. And then verse 20, And though they found no cause for death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. Caiaphas, when he was... Before they arrested Jesus, said it is better for one man to suffer than for the nation to suffer. What he was saying is, I'm willing to make any sacrifice, even of an innocent person, so that the world, so that the nation doesn't suffer. Because Jesus was, as far as they were concerned, stirring up trouble, stirring up trouble toward God. And if he was really the Messiah, they weren't ready for the Messiah to start a war in Israel. So they're going, okay, we're willing, we're willing to kill him to, to keep peace. Now, in essence, what they were saying is, we have our position, and if he's really who he says he is, we're going we're gonna to lose our position. People in power do not like to lose their power. And many times, this is why John is such an amazing man, because he was humbly giving up his position of power. They, they were ready to make him Messiah. They were ready to follow him. If he just said, let's go to war... The people were ready to follow him. And he says, no, I'm not the right one. You've got to follow the right one. The leaders, the, the Sanhedrin, weren't ready to give up their power. They were willing to murder one righteous man that they knew had no problem, no, 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 was not a troublemaker, but they were really ready to kill him because he was a threat to their power. The people were following him. We have a situation where we have a Saul and David situation going on. Dave, David was getting popular with the people and Saul was jealous of him. David never once tried to attack Paul, uh, Saul. Never tried to take his position. The Sanhedrin sees this. They're jealous of Jesus. They're jealous of his popularity. And in Jesus' case, he allows them to kill him because that's why he came to this world was to die for the sins of the world. So he let them execute him. It's an amazing thing. When you look at the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, every point in that story, Jesus is in control. He rides into Jerusalem announcing that he is the Messiah. He goes into the temple every single day. They don't arrest him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes, I am he when they're getting ready to arrest him. And then he says, let these go. They're, I'm the one you want. Let these go. And they let him go. He, gets, he goes before them. He never defends himself. You know, and, I've, and I really, we sing the song, 10, 000, he could have called 10,000 angels. I really have pictured the angel standing around the throne of God. You know, uh, okay, uh, Father, uh, uh, God, uh, you know, they're, 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 beating, they're, they're beating you down there. Uh, why aren't you telling us to go? You know, why aren't we being called? Why aren't you letting us? You know, and I can just see him just straining at the bits. You know, it's like, what's going on here? Why, uh, God, that is you down there being beat. Why, why, aren't, you, why aren't you calling for, for help? You know, you know, one of us killed 185,000 soldiers. You know, God, we could, you know, we could go down there and rescue you. What's, what's going on? And he never called for them. He told Pilate, Pilate said, don't you know that I have the power to free or kill you? And he goes, you would have no power except it be given to you. 
And to Pilate, he says, I could call 10, uh, 10 legions of angels. Why? Because that was almost the entire strength of Rome. Jesus said, I've got to, and that's when Pilate comes back to him, so you are a king. <laughs> you, know, you are a king. You're, you're telling me you have an army at your disposal. <laughs> and he goes, so say you. But Jesus was in control every part of that because he was God. If he did not want to die, he could have just said, Father, none of this is worth it. I'm coming home. If he didn't want to die and just rule Jerusalem, he could have called the angels and gotten rid of the Roman Empire in a, in a second, a nanosecond. But he was in full control of the situation and said, I am here to die. Jesus understood why he was there. He understood what he was going through. He understood why he had to be made man so that he could die for man. And, you know, we look at this and God loves, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's such a promise. Jesus voluntarily came and died. And this is what Paul's saying. They, they, they killed an innocent man. They delivered him up, even though they knew he wasn't guilty. Now, they trumped up their charges and everything. And remember, their charge for the Jews was that he's claimed to be God. But when they made it to, to Pilate, they said he's an insurrectionist trying to cause you know, uh, dissent to Rome. Both charges were not valid, but at least on their kind, yes, he had said he was God, which, is, which would have been blasphemy if he wasn't God. But because he was God, it wasn't blasphemy, even though they accepted it as blasphemy, but they could not execute him. The punishment for, capital punishment had been taken away from the Jewish people because they were killing too many people. Uh, the, the Jews had a lot of capital offenses. And if you got on the wrong side of the Sanhedrin, they just took you out and stoned you and trumped up the charges. They had no problem with that. So Rome had come in and said, okay, you guys can't, you can't execute anybody anymore. Uh, any executions will be done by us. Pilate had been in a very tight spot because he had done too many executions and he had, he had severely attacked the people on many riots and put them, out, out, you know, put them under control. And Caesar had basically gone back to him and said, uh, you're killing way too many people that are supposed to be paying taxes. And one more time, and you're going to lose your, you're going to lose your governorship, and you're going to be sent back out to the front, front lines. You're, you're not going to be a governor anymore. You're going to be a general. Governor was a lot safer job <laughs> uh, than being on the front lines of the battle as a general. So we see all these things coming in to set up Jesus' death. A jealous Sanhedrin that's not wanting to lose their power. Pilate, who's, who's now just a pawn in people's hands because they know that all they've got to do is threaten to cause a riot, and he's gone. Now, they probably didn't want another leader, but they also knew they had power because he had been compromised because, because of what had happened. And one of the things that happens is when we get compromised, we're in trouble. One of the things they teach us out of the prison is that, you know, if you compromise yourself with an inmate, you're in trouble because that inmate has you over the barrel. You do one thing for that inmate, and all they got to do is threaten to expose you, uh, expose what you did, and you're, 
you're at least going to get fired and probably go to jail. Uh, and, they, and they know that. Um, used to watch Hogan's Heroes, and, and Schultz was a, the picture of a compromised guard. They actually did things right in front of him without even you know, caring because they had so much on him that he was, he was going to be you know, uh, dismissed, actually sent to the Eastern Front at that time, which was death. Uh, so they just did whatever they wanted in front of him because they had, he, they had him. They had him over the barrel. We as Christians have to be careful that Satan doesn't put us over the barrel. Now, the good news for us is if we repent, God forgives us. The bad news for us is usually we don't understand that. We listen to Satan's lies and think, oh, man, I've just been so bad. There's no way that God's ever going to forgive me. He's going to make me start down at the bottom again. I, I, I'm, I'm never going to be be able to be accepted by God. He's never going to have this much trust in me. Why do we have those kind of statements? Because we don't understand his love. Satan likes to try to get us to sin. So then it's very interesting because Satan comes in and tells us, well, if you sin, you can, you can, ask, you can repent and God will forgive you. And then we sometimes will listen to that statement from him. And then once we sin, he tells us how awful we are and terrible and God will never forgive you and and, you're, and you're, you're never going to be the same. You'll never have your relationship with God. He plays it both ways with us. He'll get us to, to treat God's grace lightly before we sin. And then he tells us that God's grace is not valid after we sin and plays it both directions. And the sad thing is, how many times do we listen? We go out and sin thinking, oh, well, I can just repent and then... We beat ourselves up so badly after we've sinned because, wow, I should never have sinned, especially if we do it on purpose. You know, uh, there are times when we just say, God, I, I don't care. I'm just going to sin. I, I'm, I'm going to go sin. And Satan really beats us up then because he knows we did it on purpose. Oh, God, I'll never forgive that. You, know, you, you purposely walked into that. Jesus Christ says, you're the one person grace cannot... Well, not only that, but you were just so awful. You know, you, how could you as a good Christian have done that? Uh, you are the worst of the worst. No Christian would have done what you did and trying to really play it up so that we won't go to God for repentance. And oftentimes Christians will wallow in that self-pity for a long time. This is why it's very important to know who we are in Christ. We are forgiven. And we have the righteousness of Christ. And our salvation is eternal. It is not something that God's going to take away. This is one of the things I have a problem with. People who think you can lose your salvation. They must have a God who is very weak. And he's an Indian giver. I'm going to give you eternal life. And then I'm going to take it away. So that by definition, it was never eternal life. And none of, us, none of us are ever going to deserve it because if we think that we can lose that, we have a problem, number one, with, who, with our walk with God and, and how much grace it is. And that is a big deal. We need to make sure that we always understand no matter how pure I think my life is, it's not pure enough. No matter how much God has taken out of my life, there's still more to take out of it. And God is real good about shining the light a little brighter, a little deeper into our heart to show us the next thing that has to be gotten rid of. And if we get so self-righteous that we think we deserve our salvation, we deserve God's love, 
we are deceived. And we will have a very weak Christianity at that point. He loves us and wants us. Matter of fact, he loves us so much and wants us so much that he knew that we were going to sin and he knew that he was going to die before he made us. That is the one thing that just is mind-boggling to me, how much God loves us that he did all this knowing we were going to sin or knowing that Adam and Eve were going to sin and that we would sin and knowing that he would have to die for us to redeem us and still created us, still brought us into the family, still justified us and declared us perfect and clothed us in the righteousness of Christ and will take and live with us for, for eternity. He knew what was going to happen. He knew everything. He's outside of time. So when he created man and all the earth, he already knew everything that was going to happen for the entirety of time. Nothing surprises him. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, it was not a surprise to him because he already knew. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. When the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together and said, we're going to create man, they're going to send Jesus, will you die? He said yes, and at that point, he was the lamb slain for sin so that God could look upon man with redemptive eyes. What a beautiful picture we have there of his love and how he sees us so different than we see ourselves. And I don't even understand how he sees us because I, I begin to have a little glimpse of, and even that doesn't make, make sense sometimes when, when you think of the love that God has for us and the sacrifice he made. And the sacrifice, as I've said many times, was just not Jesus. When he became sin, the Father and the Holy Spirit turned their back on themselves. And a unity that had been perfect for all of eternity past was broken. You would think so, but that's his love. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit paid a penalty for our sin so that we could be redeemed. And he, he gladly made that sacrifice. And it is hard to picture, it is hard to understand why. Why would you do that? Because nobody here would really take and, you know, to love an enemy is tough. To die for an enemy it would be something very few people are going to do. Uh, you know, we might die for a friend. We might do just about anything for a friend or somebody who likes us back. But what would we do for an enemy? Very little in our human flesh. Now, as Christians, many times a Christian will offer their life for an enemy because they know that is important. I would want to be able to say that I will give my life for somebody who doesn't know Christ because I know where I'm going. Many times, that's exactly what Christians will do. They will go into hard, hard areas because they know people are dying and going to hell. And even if they lose their life, if they can keep somebody else from dying and going to hell, it's worth it. And this is the beauty of us as Christians. When we truly understand the heart of God toward, toward the lost, completely understand that, that they're headed for hell, then we get to the attitude that Jesus had. I will gladly give my life so that they can be redeemed. 
and be able to get turned over to Christ. When you read things like Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's a very hard book to read. It's a very tough book to read. But all of these Christians gave up their life willingly so that others could get to know God. This is true love in action. God, whatever you need to do to me, I'm willing if somebody else can go to be saved. Paul said it at one point, God, I would be willing to go to hell if all the Jews could get saved. Now, he knew that couldn't happen, and I'm not to the point where I would make that prayer. Moses said the same prayer, God, save them and take me. Don't judge them. That is the greatest love that you can have. Both of them knew what they were saying. God, if, if you would take the rest, of the rest of these people, I would be willing to take the punishment forever. Do we have that kind of love of God for the lost world? Most of us probably don't. I'm not sure I'm there. <laughs> it's, it's, a big, it would be, it's a big request. You know, are we, and this is where we need to really talk to God and say, God, help me love the world enough that I am willing to die so that they don't go to hell. And that is something that's important. And I'm hoping that when the time comes and that I'm going to be willing, God, take me. If it's a choice, and I, and I know for, some, for certain people, if there was a choice, me or somebody else, and it's not saved, I would want them to take me because I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. God, you have, they'll, they'll have another chance. Our love needs to get to that point. Now, when it actually happens, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> But I'd like to think that I would be willing to say, yes, God, I know that person's not saved and it's a choice between the two of us. Take me. And I've read a number of testimonies where people have done that. Kill me. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the blame because I know where I'm going. They're going to hell. I want them to have a little longer, a little more choices, a little more chances to know God. Take me. This is where God is asking us to get to, where our love gets so strong that we're willing to give up anything, our right, and maybe not even our rights. This is even harder. It's, it would be easy to give up our life. What if we give up our right to something? What if they don't change, don't they? they still had more opportunity. They still had more opportunity. Oftentimes we have the problem of, I want my rights, God. I want my rights. This is my right. And God's saying, are you willing to sacrifice so somebody else can can live before God. This is something that's very important. And I'm not saying we always give up our rights, that we always give up our life, but we need to be willing to say, God, what is it that you want? Am I willing to give up and sacrifice for, some, for the lost world? And it's a tough decision. I'm not going to say it's an easy decision. It is a very tough thing to be able to say, I am going to give up me so that they can get minister to and the most important thing is when the time comes for you to face a decision like that God will give you the grace to make the right decision if you're willing to if your heart is in the right place in the first place uh, because God has not given us the grace I'd like to say I'm willing to give up my life for anybody but you know until the day I face the, that gun or the injection or the or the or the sword or the guillotine or whatever it is they're going to do I don't know what I'm going to do 
I want to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, my God is able to, but whether he does or doesn't, I'm going to serve him. Uh, whether, uh, if I perish, I perish, as, as Esther said. You know, I'm going to go stand before God, and if I perish, I perish. When the time comes, God will give us the grace to do whatever it is that he wants us to do if we're willing to step out and, and live it. But it does take understanding that my life is in God's hands. And if I'm going to go to heaven, I'd rather it be me than somebody that doesn't know God to go to hell. Even if I only gain them five minutes <laughs> to make this decision for God, my sacrifice might be just what they needed to see to say they had something real and make a decision to follow God. And that is what we find in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. These people died and people looked at them and said, they had something real. They were following something more than just this world. And then people got saved. And this is what we need to be able to realize. Our sacrifice might just be what somebody needs, that little bit, that little bit that pushes them over the edge to decide for God. Or puts one more nail in their coffin. <laughs> one way or the other, uh, well, now you knew this person died for you. You knew that they died for you. And you still rejected me. You know, that is not even a theoretical Jesus dying for. You know, that person told you the gospel and showed it to you. So they either respond to the yes, I'm going to follow the gospel, or they reject it, which is one more, one more nail, one more, one more opportunity that they failed to follow through. This is where our love for the world, the people in the world, not the world, <laughs> is so important. Do we really love the people that are going to hell enough to give them the gospel message? Enough to sacrifice our own life for them? Our own, what we want for them? This is what marriage is all about, where somebody gets married and they sacrifice their desires for their spouse. It's a tough, it's a tough thing to be married. If you want a good marriage, to be able to sacrifice your desires, your thoughts for somebody else. That's what God is asking us to do. Sacrifice our desires, our thoughts, our rights for what he wants. And that's ultimately the, the call that we're made. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help each one of us to desire to follow you more and then listen to your voice as you, as you teach us what you would have us to do and, and walk with us in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? 
pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.